never felt so prepared for my offering. I've written so many notes. I've put them in kind of an order. Order the book. I have listed them in a way that's easily readable so I can talk about them as I mention them. I'm so excited for this episode. Welcome again to another episode of the Small Chops Podcast. Don't have a tagline. But uh, culture, identity, and love are the main topics of this podcast. And over the last two episodes, um, last two weeks, I have been diving deep into The Art of Loving by Eric Fromm. This book has been really, really helpful. It's It seems to be timeless. He wrote it over 60 or 70 years ago. And so much of um, his gripes with modern culture are still on full display and haven't kind of been integrated in a more conducive way for human relationships and identity and things like this. I really, really, really can't stress enough how helpful this book has been in just putting words, um, giving me understanding about certain traits that I display, as well as the people that I've dated, um, certain reasons for, you know, personal development or, or, or self or identity or, you know, self-perception. I think this book has been really helpful in giving me the framework, maybe even the scaffolding as to how much of my questioning has come about. Uh, If you haven't already, please go back and listen to part one and part two, part one and part two. Not all of the parts are related, but there's some really, really helpful information, especially in part two um, that pertains to, you know, um, mother energy, father energy, or just like uh, the archetypes or the ways of perceiving either of these parties. This book has been really, really, oh, wow, helpful. So this third part we're talking about is going to be love and its integration in Western society. But before I get to that, of course, I have to start the show officially. Can't start without any, without the tunes. So this is Coachella season, and I thought that I would enjoy with you the offerings of Sunday service. The first time at Coachella. I think this was 2019. I start this at a great time. Hey. Perfect timing. This is actually my ringtone. I love this. so sweet i'm definitely gonna let that ride in the background because it's such such beautiful music I, oh gosh i can't enjoy all of them all of the sunday service videos that you can find on youtube i've absolutely played them several times that is such beautiful beautiful music and it's something to pay attention to for sure 
As we get into part three of Eric Fromm's The Art of Loving, we start with a, I guess you call it a pretty, call it a pretty general view of Western culture. We have to understand Western culture and what is a priority in Western culture before we can talk about love's um, participation or value, importance, or consideration within that culture. So part three starts off talking about what business ultimately is. Not what business is, but a specific part of business. When enterprises and businesses get so large, they usually have a board of directors in one way or the other. I never thought about this before, and I've never heard it you know, uh, stated either. But I can see it making a lot of sense. It says bureaucracy managing business for stakeholders. So that board of directors, those people that are in charge of uh, what's in the best interest for the stakeholders aren't actually considering the stakeholders. Um, making money isn't the priority of that business. The actual priority and the job of that board of directors is to expand the enterprise and expanding the enterprise. The enterprise expands their power. This is especially doable when it's using other people's money, when it's using resources that maybe you don't have direct access to, but maybe on loan or credit or something like that. There's a lot of ways to really uh, manipulate that relationship with, with property. And because these businesses grow to such gigantic proportions, often you know, employing upwards of thousands of people, 10, 15, 20,000 people, 5, 10, 15, 20,000. Um, and each of those persons has to complete a function. They have to be part of a machine, essentially a cog. They're meant to be a cog in that giant enterprise. They're not meant to be you know, too individualistic. They're meant to be easily replaced if need be. They're meant to have limited access to information and capabilities. They're meant to Fulfill one purpose and one purpose only, almost specializations, but doesn't necessarily have to be somebody who's of you know a great education or something like that. They just need somebody that can do one thing repeatedly and be okay with it. Um, and those cogs, those men that work for these individual companies, they're not aware of their own individual tastes or desires from life. Maybe they are and are willing to sacrifice it or willing to ignore it. Um, maybe it's not of value. There are certain people who've grown up in certain cultures that um, what you want as an individual isn't important. Your unfolding isn't important. What you need to do is just you know, do what culture dictates. Pay your taxes, get married, go in debt to buy a house, and live the rest of your life. However, you know, popular culture deems cool, necessary, um, exciting. Um, this results in man, modern man. And when I say man, it's like a uh, human. You know what I mean? Um, this results in man being alienated from himself, from his fellows, um, from each other, as well as from nature. And uh, even though you're part of that herd, you're part of that collective who, you know, they use oftentimes they talked about a water cooler conversations. And of course, you want to be part of that. You know, whatever is going on, if you're spending 40 hours a week in a certain office or in a certain place every single day, um, you want to make connections with those people because that's where you're spending the majority or a vast, a great portion of your 
um, awaking time. Even if you're not there, you're preparing to go there. And after you leave there, you still have there on your mind preparing for the next day being there. So the people that are part of that, that office politics or those office social interactions become very, very important. And being um, integrated in that uh, group is really important for some people. Uh, It starts from grade school, high school, being part of a a collective, whether it's a sports team, whether it's the cool kids, um, mean girls, whatever, the the alternative kids. There's always a group of people that have been able to uh, collectively identify and support each other. And in work, it's really no different. And so being a part of that herd, being part of that group is really important for some people. But unfortunately, being part of that group does not lend to the um, to the solution of loneliness, of connection. These people are, quote, utterly alone, pervaded by the deep sense of insecurity, anxiety and guilt. The book states on page 80. And it goes on to talk about how these um, uh, these cultural norms that are within the herd are not helping anybody overcome, you know, the sadness of um, purpose of individualistic expression, creative expression of the self in its um, most authentic, uh, uh, in its most authentic expression. And um, we trade that off for a paycheck, for some stability, for the illusion of safety. And um, luckily, we are not reminded of it when we watch TV, when we're, you know, when we're being given acts, when we're being given distractions. Um, it's less and less important for us to focus on that loneliness. And sometimes it uh, can dissipate. Other times it becomes um, even even more so more important. And the alienation becomes a real a real issue. Mental health is um, something that hasn't been taught. And we are trying to. I guess put a band-aid over an epidemic of people who aren't fulfilled with life, who aren't curious about being a better human being. We're just trying to do what they're told, trying to take the easy route and the easy route isn't easy. So um, I think that that's uh, that book put it really beautifully. Um, The strict routine life distract distracts man from human desire. And that desire for uni- for unity, I mean that desire that desire is also a desire to transcend the self. We talked about that in part two, where um, a mother's ability to transcend the self comes in the form of a child being able to live for more than just oneself, or to create a, a lasting effect on the world that exists beyond the mother. Um, you know, best case scenario, a father doesn't have that same connection. With the child, the father doesn't feel that sense of transcendence from the child, and that father energy or that father um, archetype or method of love really seeks to make a mark on the world. It's outwardly expressed. It's looking to have uh, technology, ways of life, um, improvements on the world or the community that lasts beyond the person. I think about nail clippers. Just clip my nails, maybe like. 20, 30 minutes ago. And that technology has not evolved substantially. I mean, yeah, you have like little, what do you call those things? Kind of like, gr- like grinders or uh, dr- like Dremels. 
where but you're not really using that in the day-to-day you're not using that as a man i don't think i'm not using that um using something that's very simple and that doesn't need electricity something that i can use that keeps my you know nails properly manicured and it's really been not not there's no need to upgrade that and i think that you know even though we don't know that person that person's contribution to our lives is undeniable i actually need to find out who that person is start doing start doing that people that have really made impactful um, additions to my life should start knowing who they are i'm in front of my computer but i'm not gonna give with that right now because it's fake if i do it right now i need to do it later when i actually rethink about it i want to show genuine interest um the book also talks about the despair and despair is cleverly um, avoided by the entertainment industry there's a whole industry much like the roman times i played a lot of civilization the game in my life and when your citizens are unhappy especially if they're underfed or at war um, there's no better way to soothe those the angst of the herd of the group than by giving them entertainment by giving them something to distract themselves from that that, that deep hunger or that sadness that directionless in life that directionlessness in life super important to to pay attention to i think um so in addition to the entertainment industry we've also have we also have a, a culture of um fun or enjoyment I guess enjoyment would be a little different from joy. Having joy in life may be a little more likened to serenity. Um, doesn't necessarily mean happiness all the time. But I think enjoyment is really part of our culture of today. And that is something that can be given or taken away. Um, we are really focused on that. Both sides of humans. Um, the masculine and the feminine love, I think, is really looking for enjoyment versus you know, uh, a possible a possible um, alternative would be to handle more difficult situations, to be a more evolved quote unquote person. Um, we talk about uh, commodities, and people have become commodities in today's culture. We've been able to exchange goods for services, or perceived services you know what i mean like we go on dates and we wait until this many dates to do this or we have these kind of checklists of things that we need from the other person um before we get to know the person at all Uh, we are trading success for you know love or we're trading beauty for monogamy we're trading loyalty for um what adventure and there's all these exchanges that are going on, which is a derivation of the capitalist culture more so than the economy. Um, but it is not to be ignored that so much of our interactions with each other is very much a um, a mutual ben- a mutually beneficial exchange. If we can't mutually benefit each other, then why are we you know, why are we engaging in whatever we're engaging? In? It could be platonic, it could be erotic. Um, It is something to really pay attention to because I don't think that that is how we can be as ideal human beings. Um, Our character is geared to exchange and to receive, to barter and to consume, page 81 states. And I think that that, that, that speaks a lot because I have had that own, I've had that 
I don't know. If, I don't even know if it's ingrained in me or coming from a logical point of view as much as possible. You just think exchange, and that's the culture that I've been brought up in. And I didn't think that there was something bad with that. I was encouraged to think um, I'm giving, and let me see what I can get on the back end. When it comes to dating, either you pay for the food or you're just um, overtly giving as the part, the part, the man that I am in, in any kind of like dating or relationship situation, I want to give first, but I'm also looking to receive and I'm paying real close attention to what I receive and when I receive it. And I try to balance those two out. You know what I mean? Like if, if I've taken you out a couple of times and um, we've gone out to eat all three times and there hasn't been like a meal cooked or something that is kind of like equivalent value of some sort, then to me that feels, that feels like, um, unfairness and I've tried my best to be as fair as possible I think fairness is really important to me um, and this book has me rethinking that as well so can't wait to get to that part um, modern love has to follow the same methodology if the culture has that in mind right so if we're bartering if we have a culture of capitalism where we're bartering and we're looking to exchange goods for services and trying to find the highest value for the least amount, um, trying to get the most out of your money, trying to spend the least by gaining the most, you're trying to have equivalent exchange and trying to corner the market and become highly valuable and all these different things that we have that are part of um, the capitalistic culture that we live in has to be trans- translated into the way we love each other as well. There's no, there, there's no bifurcation of culture and of, of thought. And I can't agree with that more. You know what I mean? Modern love must follow the same methodology. Uh, it's the same form of exchange. And even more so, we, we take it to the, um, we, 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 even the, even the couple, right? Partners, the marriage has been perceived as a, as a team, Right. Uh, a team is something that I definitely think that I know that I've heard referred to myself. I just want a good teammate. Um, we are looking to be successful in this endeavor. So we need to team up, have light cause. We're on the same you know, team. It's almost like uh, war buddies or something like that. And we're trying to tackle this thing called love. We're trying to tackle this thing called relationship. And we're doing this together. And that team aspect, that team ideal, um, it doesn't lead to the unfolding of the person so to speak right it is very much geared towards accomplishing something focusing on the target and getting to that target and i don't think or the book says that avoiding loneliness is the real goal of that partnership right um we are looking to have a quote-unquote good marriage we are looking to be supportive of each other but the most important part is we are looking to avoid loneliness and um, unfolding as a person or supporting the, your partner in their unfolding and not having uh, your own motive or your own desires for their lives, but allowing them to unfold in their time, um, in their way, is something that may not be encouraged or at least taught and considered. Um, I know that the lives, the, the relations that I've had have been very much uh, focused on equivalent exchange more so than allowing each person to unfold. And while you want your partner to be exactly who they're going to be, 
especially if they grow into that as they grow into that person but you also have to make concessions and there's so much compromise that sometimes you don't know if it's contributing to your uh, development as a human being or just uh, for the success of the relationship or um, the reduction of friction in a relationship again just to avoid that loneliness um and this this form of team apparently uh, according to the book started around the end of world war 1 um there were a lot of relationship issues when soldiers were coming back or just because you know things things changed women were working now uh there was a, a lot of cultural a cultural shifting going on in the western world especially in the states i know specifically and there were so many magazines and radio hosts um, and professionals in relationships that referred to the issues that, that said that the issues in sex, excuse me, the issues in relationships directly stemmed from a lack of satisfaction of either or both partners sexually. So the bedroom was the root of all the issues that were going on in relationships at that time. And so to resolve that, uh, this problem, they focused on the quote unquote correct sexual behavior. <laughs> there was a prescribed way of interacting with your partner socially, and that was supposed to improve your marriage. And I, I would assume that anyone's married has had issues and is looking to improve their marriage. And so having people, especially in a cultural level, subscribe ways of resolving the issues in the marriage must have been super super um collectivizing right um if people were having the same methods then they're probably experiencing similar issues so you and your neighbor both are unsatisfied because your husband's own doing x y and z or your wives aren't doing this and a third or your partner's period there is a uh, there's a bond almost like a trauma bond Oh, good. We're all suffering through the same thing. So maybe it's just not for anybody. You know, if there's no satisfaction in the marriage for so many people, then that can be the new norm. Like you're not supposed to be satisfied in a marriage and um, you're unfolding. You're developing as a human being, as a person at your own rate, in your own way. Doesn't get prioritized, but doesn't for any of us. So it's okay because you don't want to stick out. Right. The book says the underlying idea that love is the child of sexual sexual pleasure and if two people learn how to satisfy each other sexually, they'll love each other. Um, that what what that was the times that was um, sought after, that was looked to be achieved uh, at that time. And uh, these ideas stemmed from several, uh, not only economists, but I, I guess Darwin, Freud. They were like sociologists or psychologists, but also not naturalists. Um, it's the word when you're studying animals, when you're studying like human life or not human life, but um, and yeah, animal life. They were biologists. And uh, Freud's idea gave man a specific personality, regardless of who the man is. It was what a man is. And Freud attempted to answer that by saying man is driven by desires for sexual conquest of all women. 
and that the only thing preventing man from acting on those desires for conquest is society, is um, the desire to be a part of the community, um, the desire to follow the rules, and these rules are preventing men from acting on the desire for you know, feminine conquest. But naturally, men are jealous of one another and very competitive, according to Freud. And this nature of men would exist regardless of society and economic conditions. Now, those ideas were probably the the uh, the brainchild. No, were probably the love child of Darwin's idea of survival of the fittest, as well as um, capitalist economists at the time were quote unquote proving that capitalism has an insatiable desire for growth, and that growth is um, spearheaded by competition, healthy competition or otherwise. And the market can grow eternally. And um, those that are on top of the market reap the most benefits. And those that get to the top of that pile by any means necessary uh, reap the most benefits longest. There was a quote by an author named H.S. Sullivan that Eric quoted. That uh, yeah, Yes, obviously. And I actually wrote the whole quote because I thought it was not necessarily related to Darwin's ideas or Freud's ideas of man's sexual desire, but how the ideas of the times really echo what's going on now when it comes to us. What's going now with kind of how we are approaching long-lasting relationships. H.S. Sullivan writes, Intimacy is the best type of situation involving two people, which permits validation of all components of personal growth. Validation of personal personal worth requires a type of relationship, which I call collaboration, by which means I, I, which I mean clearly formulated adjustments of one's behavior to the express needs of the other person in pursuit of increasingly identical, that is more and more nearly mutual satisfaction and in the maintenance of increasingly similar security operations. So as long as both people are looking to be as frictionless as possible, as long as both people are looking to pursue satisfaction in the relationships, and as long as both people are protecting the relationship and looking for its, um, looking to, you know, have it grow as much as it can. Those are the um, those are the hallmarks of a successful relationship. Now, it didn't have anything to do with sexual desire or satisfaction. Uh, one thing that I took away from that was the validation of personal worth. How how does one do that for another? I think I have difficulty in. Um, it might be both. I might have difficulty in feeling. Uh, valued in the relationship partly because what I think I do in relationship doesn't always translate to jelly beans in the jar right Dante Nero has a really excellent analogy that I that I've that I that I've kept and it's a jelly bean jar and every time something is done that speaks to the person in a positive way that lets the person know that you know you are thinking about them. They add jelly beans to the jelly bean jar. And every time they feel slighted or negative or insulted 
or not supported or, you know, belittled, those jelly beans are removed from that jar. So I think it's awesome to really um, understand where my under, where my to understand where my thoughts of how it's an exchange comes from. And H.S. Sullivan brings up a different aspect of love and relationship, which talks about each each person protecting the other. Um, each person looking to say, okay, well, if this is something that you're entrusting in me, let's both work towards um, securing this, making sure that it's allowed to develop and grow. Uh, that quote, again, was found on, the, on page 87. The book switches gears a little bit, and it comes to the centrism of the mother and the father. In part two, we spoke briefly. No, actually, we spoke pretty extensively about the correlation between gods of the time and which parent uh, provided the child um, specific kinds of love, both which are incredibly important, I would say very necessary, vitally important for the child's growth and development. And we talked about kind of the shadow forms as well, you know, how those um, how those centristic views of love can be um, bastard, not bastard, neg- negative, harmful. Uh, for example, we spoke briefly about how the father becomes the center of the child's attention or the child's uh, experience of love, but the father's love is very conditional. So that child doesn't get the support of unconditional love and um, encouragement, uh, but the encouragement is only provided through merit, uh, through earning it. And while it will never get to zero, it can be manipulated by the child's effort. And the love can also be withdrawn, taken away because of the child's um, disobedience. So we go on to mother centrism. And the emotionally undeveloped man that doesn't have the unconditional love of the mother and the leadership and conditional love of the father, but instead is solely um, reliant on the unconditional love of the mother does not develop in a healthy way for society. This emotionally undeveloped, undeveloped man who hasn't been able to wean off of mother or her love, even if she's no longer available to him, he still needs that unconditional love, right? Even if he's not, even if he doesn't have a relationship with her anymore, even if she's passed or they're estranged, um, if they're not in each other's lives anymore for whatever reason, that need for that unconditional love of the mother still goes unfulfilled from childhood. This does not go anywhere. This does not get overcome, I don't think. I think this is very much still a part of that being, right? That lack of love from the unconditional source is tough for that child to... um, go through the world and try to reproduce love. It's tough for that child to go through the world and try to reproduce love. I would even say in the, I was thinking about this for a while. And in the case of single motherhood, there are very many single mothers who do their best to give their children, especially boys, some of that male energy, some of that conditional love where they need to earn it through merit through discipline, through hard work, 
And I think I've underst- I understand keenly how dangerous that can be for the development of the boy. And I'd never thought about it in this way until I read this book. God bless this book, seriously. What I came to understand is that child, that infant, that newborn, that toddler is raised with the single mother providing unconditional love. That mother is doing her best, working as many jobs as she needs to, um, resting little, but still providing unconditional love for that child up until a certain age. And when that young boy becomes the age where um, he can receive more of father's conditional love or um, last uh, last episode we spoke about um, a child of eight and how that child of eight very much still needs the guidance of the parents, especially the father, but they are striking out on their own. They're looking to um, stand on their own to become more independent. But not only that, they're looking to give love all of their life. They've just received love from the unconditional source, which is mother. And at a certain point, once they're getting closer to the father energy and looking to um, become more autonomous, now they want to return love. They want to give love. And that giving love is a part of that self-development. That child does things um, to be able to show, hey, you know, you are loved or I love you because I've learned how to do this from you. In the case of a single mother, that child's source of unconditional love all of a sudden becomes conditional. That child doesn't know exactly when it happened or why it happened. It's very possible that child blames themselves for not being adequate enough to maintain the unconditional love of that mother. Um, Little does that child know the mother is looking to um, be balanced. You know what I mean? Like the effort is there to try to give the child what the mother might know the child needs or lacks at least, at very least. Um, But there is a betrayal there, right? There is almost a sin there where the mother is a source of unconditional love. So why all of a sudden does that love become conditional? Not only does it become conditional, but it cannot return to unconditional. That oscillating is even more dangerous and I think more damaging for the child. But if it just switches to where now the child needs to earn the love of the mother that on a psychological level on a deeply subconscious level can be maddening i would imagine i can't see that developing into a healthy relationship with that motherly bond and i'm just coming off the top right now because i wrote it down in my notes but i just really found that to be deeply disturbing but it would make sense to me you know um that betrayal. And I think all the while that child tries to get back to that unconditional love in one way or the other, that child really yearns for that unconditional love. And even though that child could very much accept the conditional love, it cannot accept that love from the originally unconditional source, right? My unconditional mother cannot now provide me with the paternal conditional love. I don't know if it's an African thing, but there is a real 
communication to children that if you misbehave, I will not support you. I remember growing up in that kind of household. Like, if you were to ever get in trouble, first of all, you know, whatever the school said happened, happened. And I was always left to defend myself. And I had nobody in my corner if there was ever any, you know, misbehaving or blaming for something or another. But more importantly, it's like, hey, you know what? If you fall, if you get in trouble, if you just find yourself in the wrong place at the wrong time, you won't get any support from here. You won't be helped. So keep that in mind. That is from the unconditional source specifically. That has to be damaging on a subconscious level. And how does that um, child, that person relay love in a um, non-exchange, non-selfish way? How? How does that child grow up to understand or even believe in unconditional love? How could that child trust the love they receive to be closer to the love of who they are versus the love of what they provide? I submit to you that that is a very, very difficult um, hill to climb, especially if that developed person is unaware of that undeveloped aspect of their personality. Whew, went on a tangent there. Uh, <laughs> um, these men that need that unconditional love, the book actually characterizes them and gives them certain um, personality traits that I found interesting. These types of men are affectionate and charming. Um, during the time that they're courting the the interest of love, and even after, they maintain a very charming and affectionate personality because that's who they are. But their relationships remain superficial. They lack interest in responsibility or ownership of the relationship. It's partly because perhaps that ownership comes with responsibility. And that responsibility comes as a burden if there is not an equivalent exchange, right? So I've thought in the past that I, as a single person, have no problem taking on the consideration of another. But there has to be an exchange. Now, the other person might say, okay, well, you know, I take on, you know, the condition feelings of you. But it doesn't necessarily equate to each other, right? One person wants to be able to lean on the other person. And that doesn't, in my case, that doesn't reciprocate. I don't need to lean. Um, I don't think I do. You know, I very well could. But there isn't the desire to lean as a basis of the relationship that I want. And so by somebody telling me, you know, I want to be able to lean on you. I say, okay, no problem. I want to be able to, you know, do X, Y, and Z. And then I have to say, well, is that worth, is what you want, um, what, what, do I, what do I want in exchange for that? And sometimes monogamy might not be something that I or other people are willing to exchange. I think that changes with time. 
I think that changes with more and more experiences. I think that changes with difficult times, right? Um, being able to support somebody in a time where they aren't their best or, you know, they're not, oh, you know, they're going through the trough of life, you know, before they hit the crest again. It's just a difficult time in their life. And being able to overtly support that person, especially if both parties aren't going through that trough, is insanely helpful. And I think that that accelerates the desire for one or both parties to exchange more and more um, because that exchange seems worth it. But again, it's still an exchange. And that's what we're trying to get away from in this chapter specifically. Uh, That partner puts in effort to be to be loved, but not loving to the other person. Let me say that again. The person that suffers from an uh, undeveloped attachment to the mother centric um, archetype model method. That person uh, puts a lot of effort into being loved by their partner, figuring out what their partner likes, figuring out, you know, um, things to get, things to remember, things to do to actively get that person to fall in love with them. But they are not actively working on loving the other person as they are. That was really telling for me. I can say that I've exhibited those traits for sure. I have been so concerned with being, I don't even know if it's like being the person that's liked more, but I've been very concerned with doing the things that I think uh, will make the other person like me more. And I haven't really put a concerted effort. I haven't put focused effort into liking that person for who they are. I like them for the image that I may have painted of them. I like them from what I choose to see at that time. But is it the entire person? I can't say that I have. And I could even go as far as to say that um, I've tried to say there are parts of you that I would like to be different. And those parts of you, if they change, would make me desire you, love you so much more, give you so much more of the love that I have. Um, But that isn't a way to love. Again, that's the exchange-based part of this culture that we're looking to get away from, or at least looking to understand first. We don't even know why we want to get away from that. Let's understand where we're going with these um, centric um, modes of love. I drop time. This person also is characterized by Eric as having you know, ideas of grandeur. Uh, there, there's a certain level of vanity, a certain level of, you know, I need to be, um, I don't know if it's in front of the people or I need to be seen by the people. I need to be acknowledged by the people. And I wonder if those grandiose ideas are a bad thing. Now, maybe in this concoction of, you know, underdeveloped relationship with the mother and um, the need for unconditional love that they likely won't won't get, but, you know, maybe they will. 
all of these, as well as um, those grandiose ideas, may lead to a very tumultuous and under underdeveloped lover. But I don't think that these ideas in and of themselves are a bad thing. The book goes on to say that if this type of man finds the quote unquote right woman, they feel secure. They feel like they're on top of the world and can display a great deal of affection and charm. And this is the reason why these men are often so deceptive. Oh my gosh. (coughs) So if this man finds the right woman, feels secure, feels on top of the world, feels like they have so much to give when it comes to affection and charm. Where is the, where's the, where, where's the bad part in that? Right. Where is the negative? Well, he says, but when after a while, the woman does not continue to live up to their phantasmic expectations. Conflicts and resentment start to develop. If she wants to be loved and protected herself, right? If she, if she asks of the man that maybe what he's doing and the amount that he's doing it isn't um, satisfactory to her, isn't to her standard or isn't to, you know, up to her desires of what she'd like from a partner. If he feels that from her, that man is deeply hurt and disappointed. And his rationalization is that the woman actually doesn't love him. She's selfish and she's domineering. That's page 88 and 89 in The Art of Loving. That disappointment is... uh, (laughs) Oh man, this book has helped me in so many ways. So many relationships. I understand so much more now how that disappointment can really just shock the system sometimes. It makes the person totally change in certain cases and starts to nitpick. And whatever you focus on in relationships, especially, you'll always find. So if you're focusing on the reasons why your partner isn't appreciating your effort, you will absolutely find every single one of those examples. But the issue that I had with kind of the order of this, and I guess I understand it now because ultimately and inevitably that man is going to be disappointed by the actions or shortcomings of their lover, of their muse and in, in, certain words what i wrote down is why wouldn't i protect and love that which makes me feel like i can conquer the world and i would imagine that i would do so until she i don't know doesn't want to go dancing or maybe she dances with somebody else a little bit too seductively or um, maybe she puts herself in a situation where i could easily think this could be interpreted in a negative way. All of those really make that person withdraw that love and rationalize it by feeling unappreciated and all these different uh, ways of being able to separate from that woman. The book says anything short of the attitude of a loving mother towards a charming child is taken as a proof of a lack of love. And this is talking about that that man that has an underdeveloped relation with the mother. 
goes on to say, these men usually confuse their affectionate behavior, their wish to please with genuine love and thus arrive at the conclusion that they are being treated quite unfairly. They imagine themselves to be the great lovers and complain bitterly about the ingratitude of their love partner. Ooh, man. <laughs> I don't know who can identify with that, but um, that I quoted that. I wrote that down. And I typed it up because that was that 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 has been a way of seeing relationships. Um, oh man! It talks about a, another a negative aspect of this kind of undeveloped relationship with the mother, and that is if the mother is doing this purposefully, if the mother is preventing the child from gaining independence, from leaving the nest. Um, from marking, from striking out, in, at you know, to the world, in the world, at the world, uh, but instead, really keeping a close. Um, I wouldn't even say connection. I would even say like control of that child, whether it's because of safety concerns or just the desire to not want to be lonely. Mother is capable of handicapping a man, especially when she puts effort into ensuring he stays beholden to her whether it's degrading the women that he dates or likes, uh, or these women that could potentially take him away from her. Um, the, the mother intentionally, even if it's like a subconscious intention, right? It's not necessarily a mother's, um, you know, uh, doing his taxes and renewing his insurance and renewing his license and all, you know, his registration for his car, all these things. If the mother is doing it because she quote unquote loves her son, that's not necessarily her intentionally um, handicapping him, but she wants to, there is a, there is a subconscious aspect to her wanting to be needed. Um, and as long as that child isn't, is incapable of doing all these things on their own, then the mother is going to be um, a part of that child's life. And maybe she's doing so much that a partner wouldn't even want to do take over. The book quotes, the book says, quote, she is the one to revive. Speaking of the mother's, the mother, the mother's love. She is the one to revive and the one to destroy. She can do miracles of love and nobody can hurt more than she. So her words, her withdrawal of love, her interpretation of his actions, her belittling words, they cut to a level that the father cannot get. The mother's acceptance, the mother's love is so insanely important that her wrath is equally as um, devastating as her love is building. We move on to the father centrism. And in this regard, there are examples where um, mothers never um, leave the stage of psychosis, you know, postpartum. Uh, postpartum depression could turn into psychosis or just like withdrawal from the child or um, traumatic experience. Um, maybe she, you know, there, so many things could go on to where the mother cannot uh, give that child the unconditional love that that child needs or love at all in, you know, in certain, in certain aspects and certain conditions. So the father becomes the center of that child's life. Um, and whether the father steps up, you know, there are I'm sure men that do that as well. Um, men that want to step up and be whatever they can to that child to be both the unconditional lover as well as a conditional lover, the guider that 
the person that the father is going to be. Um, but that child, especially that son, that son becomes attached to the father through way of his approval, um, almost in a slavish kind of way, the book says. Um, that son is totally enamored by the father and is going to do anything he can to gain the favor, love, and adoration of that father. Uh, again, we tell, we talk about the the conditionality, the conditional nature of that father's love, and that could be very you know debilitating to a child. Um, affectionate to the son when the son pleases him, but withdraws when the son displeases him. I wonder if the son provides the same kind of love to their partners, right? Could it be that a son that was raised in a very conditionally loving household doesn't learn to unconditionally love their partner? Does a son that has had to earn the love that he's gotten know how to, quote unquote, just love their partner? I don't know. Are these sons have a sole objective, and that is to please the father through their accomplishments, through their deeds, through the way they live their life, either in obedience or to their father's wishes, you know, when it comes to career or in their success in other you know realms that maybe the parents never thought could be an option. I think of the recently released KSI documentary. And KSI is probably one of the most famous YouTubers, period, you know. Um, he's Nigerian, but grew up in, in England. And he talks about his relationship with his parents. He talks about what he didn't get and maybe what fueled a lot of his success. Um, you hear from him, you hear from his brother, who he was very close with. So, you know, a certain point in his in his life and how they went through that and um, his connection with his parents and what he thought he lacked and what he tried to do to prove to his father that he deserves to hear, you know, I love you or to be hugged, to be encouraged, to gain that father's approval. It's a very, very, very um, beautiful story. And I think it talks a lot about you know many immigrant parents who may not um provide the love that that child needs for a multitude of reasons, I think. But if KSI didn't have that relationship with his father, much like other men, they find they would find a man to, to be in that position. They would find somebody to idolize in, in essence. They'll find a father figure in in which they'll you know, gain their try try their best to gain their approval. With the right father father figure, they can be very successful in their career. Um, if they're guided by the right person that has them wanting to really, you know, excel and please them, you know, I think about what if you were raised by like Les Brown or Dirk Dig Dirk Diggler. Dig Diggler? Zig Zig Dig Diggler. That's hilarious. Zig Ziggler. That's who I meant. Um uh, Neville Goddard. And the like. Imagine uh, wanting to gain their favor and how successful you would be in life with somebody who has 
positive outlook on life with somebody who has a very developed sense of self um, and their part in the world, you would be successful in that in that in that career trajectory, I think, for sure. But you would also be very aloof and distant in your personal relationships. That person is so focused on the career and the acceptance and the approval and the success that they don't or they may not put a lot of effort into the art of love. Ah, (laughs) They might not. That's, you know, that is something that I absolutely see. But I never thought about this part. And Eric goes on to say that the wife won't ever be the most important part of his in his life. She'll always be second to whichever father figure he chooses. But the wife may not have a problem with that. Um, it says wife will have no problem being behind the father. If she is still attached to her father, then she can be happy with the husband who relates to her as the fickle and or unstable child. She can change ideas, her plans and her feelings based on her emotional state. And he just, you know, kind of lets her do her thing because she or her unfolding, maybe her development or the difficulty of maintaining that relationship may be a lot more difficult than a successful career or gaining the approval of that father figure. So they choose to put their effort into that and just become more and more distant, more aloof in that personal relationship. So talks a little bit about the woman that has that uh an unhealthy relationship to their parents, right? And in a woman's early life, if the parents are restrained, if the parents don't fight or express dissatisfaction, that little girl learns to be, you know, unsure of life, learns to be, uh, she becomes puzzled and, and afraid of personal interactions for sure. Um, they don't know how to engage with certain uh, emotions especially in social grouping in social group settings. And I think that that uh, afraid or that fear of life can be more debilitating for a woman because of how relational the woman is typically because of how important, especially in Western culture, uh, a woman has to, uh, how important social connections are for a woman. Um, A woman that grows up like that with parents who are very restrained and don't speak out, or express dissatisfaction as well as satisfaction, that woman isn't ever sure of what her parents think, specifically of how her parents, what her parents think of her. Um, she's never sure or she can ever see how those parents navigate their relationship with each other and with their children, which are, I imagine, extremely valuable to somebody who really takes their social standings, their social um, interactions really seriously. So this creates a woman who's remote, who who's withdrawn. She lives in her own created world that may differ from the actual that may differ from the actual world. Things happen to her, and um, they could be plots, they could be ploys, they could be so much more um, effective, affective in her life in a negative uh, sense. If she thinks that um, she's not a part of the world, but the world is doing these things to her, in essence. Um, this this attitude could also reflect and be carried over, of course, in her loving relationships. And that withdrawal leads to anxiety because she's not sure of the world. 
And because she's not sure of, you know, certain risks, she's very risk averse. She seeks that safety. And so she turns to something like masochism. Masochism becomes a way to gain, you know, lots of excitement, but that, that excitement that needs control, right? It's not all that risky to be in a masochistic relationship versus to really put yourself out there and be at the mercy of the unknown. Um, it's less risky than being vulnerable to the world by far because she has no control over the actual world or of other people in her world. So she also enjoys that brackish environment. She could be in a relationship. She could be in a marriage where peace or neutral standings is very unsettling, you know, just perpetually waiting for the other shoe to drop. And instead of being a victim of that other shoe, she takes the other shoe. She takes the shoe off. Wait, she doesn't wait for it to drop. She, she removes it and throws it. She creates havoc. Um, Patrice O'Neill talks about uh, brackish fish, fish that live in parts of the world where there's both salt water and fresh water and how this water is typically very tumultuous because both of these water sources are colliding with each other in essence. And there's never peace in that area. And that's how those fish survive. That's the environment these fish need. Cichlids, I think, are some of those fish, certain certain species of cichlids. And women can uh, find peace in that kind of environment, constantly either picking or picking fights, um, just doing anything to get away from that uh, hair-raising neutrality of the relationship. Tension is always preferred. The book goes on to talk about three forms of irrational love. And if I could flip, I did find what it what it said about irrational love. Let me see if I can find this real quick. Because I actually, actually wanted to speak about that um, other frequent forms. Because I thought that that would be something really important to actually see if I could give a definition for. Or at least a... Uh, a better understanding of what this kind of love is. And it talks about other things were irrational, other types. So let's see if we can find irrational love real quick. Oh man, I wish I could. I saw it last night and I meant to put a, a little uh, note by it. If I'm not mistaken, it was kind of towards the beginning of this chapter, but it could very well not be because I've been flipping for a while. Literally, I'm trying to read, I'm trying to skim the book and find that word, and it is not happening. And that is all right, because the notes that I have are more than adequate for uh, the explanations that I've been able to take out of the book. But uh, the three forms of irrational love, one is idolatrous love. Page 92 describes that as, if a person has not reached the level where he has a sense of identity, of I-ness, Rooted in the same productive unfolding of his own peers, he lends to idolize. It's easier to identify with somebody that is doing so much better than you, whether it's in sports, whether it's entertainment, even maybe somebody in your own, you know, sector of business, company, uh, neighborhood, social friends group, family. Uh, That sense of self lacking, uh, they really look to. Uh, emulize as much as they can of the other person. And that disappointment is inevitable. There's no way to sustain that um, idolization. 
because either you'll fault you'll you'll you won't be able to measure up uh, to have enough discipline to have enough interest to have enough desire to I don't know uh, get that business off the ground or get that body looking the way that you'd like it um, get that vehicle or that penthouse that you really um, saw yourself in and that'll get you to another level if you don't have that desire to achieve those things the disappointment in yourself is going to be inevitable as well as focusing on that person and seeing them falter because of course we're all human and that is something that is guaranteed and that person loses their fanatic their fan and that fan eventually finds a new idol and is doomed to repeat this process of losing losing themselves in another just to be disappointed finding someone new losing themselves just to be disappointed the next form of irrational love is sentimental love and the book describes it on page 93 as its essence lies in the fact that love is experienced only in fantasy and not in the here and now to another person who is real i love that they had to add that last part because online doesn't count this is way before the internet age and um, that has absolutely taken over. That has become an integral part of our lives when it comes to social interactions. Um, but that doesn't uh, take away from actual, in real life, kind of relationships. But this person isn't necessarily in that kind of like chat room relationship. This this is a person who reads those uh, those magazines. Or those books. Ah, oh, I wish I could remember that author. You know that author that always has their books in in, in like uh, uh, secondhand stores. You know, resellers. There's always or Goodwills. There's always a specific author. Uh, their name is always in cursive, and there's just like love stories, just trashy love novels and things like that. That's where these people live. These people live in those kinds of stories. Whether they're blogs, you know, books, magazines, or even YouTube videos, or watch sappy movies about love, you know, books like the so I mean, movies like The Notebook, The Matrix, excuse me, The Second Matrix, uh, The Titanic, you know, these kinds of love stories that don't really they don't really translate well in real life. These are spectators of love. Those who don't want to get in the game, so they enjoy the fantastical versions of love as their basis. Love is a daydream to them, lost when it actually comes to the lived experience. They have no idea what to do in real life. Um, other forms of sentimental love can be loves in the past, right? Um, the way people remember high school sweethearts or college loves and things like that, or even uh, exes, um, ex-wives, ex-partners, ex-husbands. They years later they think, oh man, you know it wasn't that bad. But if you were to rewind or make their past their present, they will admit that there was no love there. That love wasn't present. This is another issue when it comes to Western culture. We are sentimental about our past. We're hopeful about our future, all while disregarding the health of the present. Whether that's relationships, whether that's the state of our economy, 
whether that's the health of the world as a biologically living creature, the present really isn't paid attention to. And so much of the past and future can be augmented, can be realized or changed, can be better, I would say, if more attention was paid to getting today, right now, improved. The last form of irrational love comes in a form of protective mechanisms. And on page 94, the book says, for the purpose of avoiding one's own problems and being concerned with the defects and frailties of the loved person instead. This happens in groups, this happens in nations, this even happens in religions. Ignoring the shortcomings of myself in favor of criticizing my partner or group member. If you're in relationships where both parties are doing this, to each other, neither faces their own development by resolving one's own problems. So you're doomed to have ineffective people loving each other as much as they can, either creating codependency or creating disharmony and taking that disharmony into the next relationship. Rinse and repeat. This should have been like projective mechanisms. Maybe it was. Maybe I read it as protective, but... It could definitely be projective. Another projective mechanism is when a parent projects onto their children. Oh, wow. When the life of a parent hasn't been able to, hasn't made sense, right? When a parent hasn't been able to either achieve what they want to achieve or figure out life or figure out ways of living that could have changed or could have made them feel like they would have been accomplished or whatever it is. Um, those parents often instill in their children aspects of life that they wish they could live themselves. They project onto their children only lives that they want for themselves that can be lived through the children. And these type of parents, they fail in both regards. They fail twice. One, in resolving their own issues and being able to have a better relationship with their own lives. And two, failing again in guiding the child in their own search for their answers. And speaking of children, there are people who stay in unhappy marriages for the sake of children. I know that many immigrant um, cultures and families that migrated to Western cultures, specifically the U.S., it was really imperative that they stick together. Um, it's almost culturally normal for many Nigerian parents to be unhappy and to divorce as soon as the last kid is out of the house. And I thought that you know what, in Western culture specifically, that's what you need. To, that that's what needs to happen because a child is exponentially uh, more likely to succeed when they have a two parent household. After reading this book, I I think I still kind of feel that way. I know it might not be as accurate as I, as it could, but I still very much think that a bad relationship is better than no relationship. Bad credit is better than no credit. You'll get somebody to see your history and say, okay, well, we'll work with you with this, either bigger deposit or more frequent payments or something. But I know how to kind of deal with you if you have a bad past, credit-wise. 
If you have no past, I have no idea how to deal with you. And it's a bigger risk. I think the same when it comes to relationships. There might be parents who are in unhappy marriages. But stick together because. One. A child needs to know what unconditional love is from the mother. And yes, you can argue that if the mother is in an unhappy relationship. It is very difficult at best and impossible. At worst. For her to provide that child with the love that the mother needs to provide that child with. And the same with the father. Maybe the father could be even more over can even be more overbearing. Passing on to the child some of the sentiments they have of the mother or of the marriage in itself. And yes, I'm sure that that could be debilitating to a, for a child's development when it comes to a sense of self or when it comes to trust and love. But I think the information, the experiences of being able to connect with that mother and that father in different ways, be able to even receive those glimpses. I don't think it's going to be bad all the time. In no situation is it ever bad all the time. Maybe they do get to have that, you know, those brief moments of unconditional love from their mother, being able to provide pride or an opportunity for their father to be proud of them. Few and far between is, in my mind, still better than none at all. I think about a single parent household again, where the source of unconditional love suddenly switches and that love needs to be earned. Whereas that child grew up trusting and loving, knowing that that mother was their original God, it was their original universe. And now they're treated as a business partner or as a customer. It doesn't feel right. But instead, being able to have both parties, both parents, um, gives you that sense of the differences in the different in, in in love. But I will concede that the book says it's still better for that child uh, to live in a household where they are co-parenting. Of course, right? Co-parenting obviously is going to be better for a child that has two parents that are not happy. Um, but not every situation goes like that, right? There are times where the parents fight and the mother disappears. There are times where the parents fight and the mother gains custody of the child and makes it very difficult for the father to have access to the child or gives them access to the child um, just a few days out of the week. Makes the situation very, very frustrating for either or both parents. This is movie with Adam Driver and... uh, Oh, what's his bad woman's name? Uh, what is the name of that lady that plays White Widow? Oh my gosh, something Stevenson, something Stevenson. Um, what is it? Is that is it White Widow, Black Widow, Black Widow, Black Widow actress Scarlett Johansson, Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver. Um, they decide to get a divorce, and at the beginning of the movie. They decide just to have like an amicable divorce. Like we don't need any lawyers. We don't need anybody getting in between us. We know what we have. We know what we want to part with. Um, we know what's fair to each other. Let's just do it this way. But eventually, lawyers get involved. Friends get involved. And the whole situation just spirals out of control, making it miserable for both parties. And having the child in the middle of all of this, it was really difficult to watch. And I guess that was a cautionary tale. Because it very, it, who says it can't happen? It very well could. The 
The book says any detailed study would show, however, that the atmosphere of tension and unhappiness within the unified family is more harmful to the children than an open break would be. Which leads them to at least understand that man is able to end an intolerable situation by a courageous decision. It isn't easy to strike out. It isn't easy to end a relationship that has been gone for so long. It isn't easy to acknowledge how you feel and what you want out of life or whatever relationships you choose to be in. Again, I will say that it's obvious that if both parents are still involved, even if they don't live together, it's much better. But I will say that that doesn't always happen. There are fathers who have no idea where their children 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 are. There are fathers who can't have access to their children. I just think that it's it was very obvious to think that yeah, parents aren't happy to separate so long as they're both just in the children's lives playing an equal role. Equally valuable role. But with all of these considerations, with all of these parts of um, culture, with all these parts and interpretations of life that lend themselves to the culture of love in Western, in Western society, it seems like man is regressing. He's regressing both in society and in his participation and understanding of love. Man doesn't care to have like a, a serious relationship with God. Which personally, I posit, is self. Just a higher image of self, a more um, internalized understanding of both the divine and the self. Um, If I talk about God on this podcast, I talk about God in a very personal manner, in a very empirical way. Um, God is living the experience of your life. But without this relationship... Man has become aimless. Man only knows to move forward, to get ready for tomorrow, to keep on doing the work that you've been doing, never to look up and reconsider the path, the trajectory, never sit down to figure out what path he'd like to take, which ways of experiencing the world he'd like to engage in, This man doesn't know how to get the most out of life. This man is also led by the ego disguised as individualism, Fromm says. The wants, the selfish wants, the desires to achieve or to be validated or to be better. Um, These aren't expressions of individualism. These are all expressions of ego, of conquest, of competition. From compared modern man to a time where man's connection with the paternal God, you remember that God of vengeance, that God of um, punishment. Um, the book goes on to say uh, that man can be compared to an eight-year-old. While he definitely still needs that paternal 
um, love. Well, he definitely still needs the, the father's guidance and help. He's also beginning to integrate the lessons he learned from the unconditional love of the mother and the conditional love of the father. He's adamantly striking out to prove his autonomy, to carve his, his way through the world, to transcend his own life. He understands his shortcomings. He knows that he can rely and lean on that, on those lessons, on the upbringing that he had. But he very much still is trying to be his own person. And Fromm compares that to modern man, which he says, it's like a three-year-old. And he says the three-year-old is crying when he needs the parent. But he's otherwise totally self-sufficient as long as he's able to play. Play by himself, play with others. As long as he's able to play, he has no care in the world. On page 97, the book says, Life has no goal except to move. No principle except the one of fair exchange. No satisfaction except the one to consume. What can the concept of God mean under these circumstances? 